Good morning. Thanks, Adam, for that rousing welcome. Hey, before we get into the message this morning, there was an um, urgent prayer request that was sent to the pastors. Um, Lucas and Melody Montaigne have a cousin named Maddie Frop, who we've been praying for for a lot of years. Uh, she's been seriously ill, and she's had organ transplants, and ultimately, um, she's... Those uh, transplants are being rejected. Uh, She's in severe pain. Um, The doctors really don't know what they can do for her anymore. She's only 20 years old. Uh, The family has been suffering with her throughout this for for years. And, um, you know, the one blessed thing is that, uh, talking with Lucas, that they believe she knows the Lord. And so um, it's just got to be hard for the family, hard for the parents uh, to have the chance of losing a 20-year-old child. You know, no parent wants their child to pass before them. And so uh, I'd like to lift them up this morning. Um, it's kind of hard to jump into a message on joy with this. But the one thing that we can hold, no matter what we're going through or what our families are going through, is the joy of knowing when we know that someone, eternal destiny is secure. So let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, my heart breaks for Maddie and her family, Lord. Uh, She's gone through so much. A 20-year-old who just sometimes we feel shouldn't have had to suffer so much. Lord, we pray you hand a blessing upon her and her family. We pray for an abundance of your grace to be poured out upon them. We pray for your nearness to be felt. We pray for your comfort to be felt. Lord, we pray that your will would be done. Father, we ask concerning Maddie, Lord, that she wouldn't have to linger as a 20-year-old and continue to suffer day after day in so much pain and, and agony. We pray that if it be your will, that you would completely heal her and remove all of this that she's been suffering. We pray that you would take her home. So, Lord, we just pray in such a hard time that you would surround them with people who dearly love them, who care about them, who can come alongside them and cry with them. And also, Lord, that uh, when the time is right to rejoice with them in the knowledge that whatever happens, that she's going to be home with you one day. We lift up this service to you, Lord, as, as your messenger this morning. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, that your word would come forth clear, that would minister to us where we're at, and ultimately lift our spirits with joy in the knowledge that Jesus has come to save us from our sins and to give us salvation. And we ask that in your most precious and holy name. Amen. So the title of this morning's message is The Search for a Messiah. And this Sunday we're celebrating our third week of Advent. Our third candle is lit, representing the joy of our salvation in Jesus Christ. As Christmas draws ever more near, we joyfully look forward to our celebration of Jesus' birth. We look back at the blessed event and rejoice in a promise fulfilled, a Savior born. But in the years and centuries before Christ's birth, God's people waited in joyful expectation for a Savior promised, the one who had not yet come. Their joy was not based on the knowledge of what God had already done through his Son, Jesus Christ, but their joy was an outpouring of their faith in what God would do. In our Christmas story today, we will see the honest search for the one in whom the promise has been fulfilled, 
and the overwhelming joy that comes to the person who has found the one who has fulfilled it. May your life be filled with that same joy this Christmas season, the joy of your salvation. Let's go ahead and turn to our text this morning. If you got your Bibles or your phones, turn to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. And hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen in its rising. It led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This morning, we're also in our third week of our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, We know that Matthew was a former tax collector who stopped his work to follow Jesus and became one of the 12 disciples. Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus' life, his teachings, his miracles, his death on a cross, and his post-resurrection appearances. We've determined already that the focus of his writings is to give credible proof that Jesus Christ is God, that he is the Messiah, the one that so many had waited for. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary, says, Opinions on the identity of Jesus have always been varied and numerous from biblical times all the way to today. The question Jesus put before the disciples in Matthew 16 remains the question of the ages, Who do men say I am? In Jesus' own day, Herod, filled with guilt and conviction and paranoia, thought that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. Some thought Jesus was the fiery prophet Elijah. Others, Jeremiah the weeping prophet, and others, just a new prophet who had come on the scene. Other religions, such as Islam, believes Jesus is the most important and beloved prophet, but not the Son of God. And Judaism believes Jesus was a misguided pseudo-Messiah, one of many who had come along through the ages. In recent years, there's been a quest to find the historical Jesus, one who believed to be purely human, And he has been described as such words as an apocalyptic prophet or a cynic philosopher, a witty sage, a charismatic healer, or a social revolutionary. So as we continue to explore the answer to who Jesus really is through our study in Matthew, the most important question for you will be to answer, who do you say he is? There's so many questions humanity once answered. Why am I here? Why do I exist? What is the meaning and purpose of life? Is there anything after this life? 
But the most important question to answer, the one that answers all the other questions, is who do you say Jesus is? The correct answer to that question will launch you on a journey that will answer all the others. So let's go back to our text. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the day of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So the place of Jesus' birth is identified as Bethlehem of Judea. The name of Bethlehem means house of bread. It's the place near where Jacob buried Rachel, where Ruth met Boaz, and the place where David was born and raised. Bethlehem is a village five miles south of Jerusalem, and it's called Bethlehem Judea not only to distinguish it from a town of the same name about seven miles southwest of Nazareth, but also to emphasize that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah and a territory that produced the line of Davidic kings. That Jews expected the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem and come from David's family is clear. In John 7, 40-42, it says, On hearing Jesus' words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Christ. So others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. So even in Jesus' day, we see that there was all different thoughts about who this was. We know that Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth, so why did they travel 90 miles to Bethlehem when Mary was so close to giving birth? You know, we've really been blessed as a church to have so many newborn babies uh, born to our church family over the last several years. Ladies, just imagine with me for a moment what this journey would be like for Mary and Joseph. Husbands, think about what your experience would have been like taking this journey with your pregnant wife to have traveled 90 miles on a donkey in the heat of the desert, at times over rough terrain with the possibility of encountering wild animals and thieves, a journey that may have taken a week only to arrive in a place that has no available room to rest your weary bodies and to prepare for your son's birth. Why in the world would they choose to make this difficult and potentially dangerous journey at this time in Mary's pregnancy? And you know, ladies, as I thought about this, I think your husbands probably would have been whining even more than you. (laughs) But what the heck are they doing in Bethlehem? They left Nazareth at such an inopportune time in Mary's pregnancy because the emperor, Caesar Augustus, dictated a royal decree that all individuals must return to their ancestral towns for a census. He wanted everyone registered for the purpose of taxation. And it was the reason why there was no room for them in the inn, because so many people had gone back to Bethlehem to register that by the time they got there, all the extra rooms were were filled. And so she ends up giving birth to Jesus in a stable, more likely a cave with animals in it. Since Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, Mary and Joseph must go to Bethlehem to be officially registered there in the time that was decreed by the emperor. Matthew tells us that this was all happening in the day of King Herod. And Herod was not a Jew, yet he was designated the king of the Jews. His office was not by birth or through a kingly lineage, 
Herod was appointed by Caesar and was given the responsibility to keep the Jews in check. He reigned over the Jews from 37 BC to 4 BC, and he was also known as Herod the Great. He was wealthy, he was politically gifted, he was intensely loyal to Rome, he was an excellent administrator, and he was admired even by his enemies for his building projects and his development of infrastructure. He rebuilt the Jewish temple. But Herod was also known as a ruthless tyrant. He loved power and wealth and inflicted incredibly high taxes on the people that enabled him to satisfy Rome and to pad his own pockets. He was known to suffer from paranoia and jealousy. It said he had many wives, and it was said that he killed his favorite wife. Now, I don't know, but, you know, kill your favorite wife? You know, maybe you think of down the line that you don't like so much, but he killed his favorite wife, and not only did he do that, but he killed two of his sons. If he thought anyone was a threat to his throne, he had them murdered, even his own family. So it was during Herod's reign that wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Much of what we've come to believe about these wise men has been passed through through legend and tradition, not from the Bible. There's many Christmas cards, nativity scenes, and carols that have influenced us regarding who we've come to believe these wise men are. This morning, I hope I don't burst your Christmas bubble, but I feel I need to speak to some of these inaccuracies. First of all, these wise men were not kings. Nowhere in the scripture does it indicate that there was only three of them. So I guess there goes the most famous Christmas carol about them, we three kings of Orient are. Many think that the number three came from the three gifts that were offered to Jesus. There was three gifts represented, so there must be three kings. But the Bible doesn't indicate this. Much later, tradition even named these three wise men, Gaspar, Balthazar, and Melchior, but tradition named them. We can't really find that in the historical record. Angels first appear on the scene at the stable where Jesus was born. Then the shepherds stopped by. You know, we think maybe they came by for the five o'clock appointment, and then tradition tells us that the wise men follow maybe at eight o'clock, and somewhere in between there is the little drummer boy. This leads us to our last inaccuracy as we're going to discover that the wise men never made it to the stable where Jesus was born. Our text says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, three wise men arrive in Jerusalem. Sometime after the birth, they didn't arrive in Bethlehem, but in Jerusalem. I'm sorry if that lessens your opinion of that beautiful nativity scene you have in your front yard where you have the three wise men there in front of the baby Jesus. I don't want you to leave today and feel as if Pastor Jim's suggesting you need to snatch those three wise men off your yard and go put them in storage. But if you don't want to be biblically inaccurate, I'm only saying it's up to you. So this begs the question, what do we know about the wise men? Wise men were also called magi, which comes from the Latin word for magic or magician. These men were Gentiles, not Jews, who had traveled from Babylon. The magi were known as a group of individuals who studied the science of astronomy. And as a kid, I loved astronomy. 
I love the space program. I love going to the St. Louis Planetarium. Um, I, I mean, the space program was going really hot in the 60s, and it was just fun, the excitement that was around that. Then as a young teen, most of my other interests were supplanted by sports, girls, and partying. And most of my A's and B's were also supplanted by B's and C's and occasional D's. But I digress. So if you're a young person here this morning and you're contemplating choosing astronomy or partying, choose astronomy. (laughs) Astronomy is cool, partying isn't. These magi were also known to study astrology, which is the study of the movement of stars and planetary alignments. They believed in some ways that cosmic forces had a governing and influencing impact on life and on history, had a controlling force over earthly affairs and human destiny. They would use these studies to try to understand human behavior and predict future events. The problem with this, if you know anything about your scriptures, is that uh, the Bible forbids astrology. It attaches it to things like witchcraft and sorcery. And the reason for that is that it says clearly that they're not of God. They're not influenced by his wisdom, knowledge, or power, but are of the devil, used by him to draw people away from God and the truth of his gospel message. And it's likely that these wise men at the time weren't aware of that. These magi were of an ancient tribe of priests that appear in Babylon during Israel's captivity and were still around at the time of Jesus' birth. As Israel experienced defeat at the hands of the Babylonian armies, there was a series of deportations of the Jews into Babylon where they were taken into captivity for 70 years. Many of the Jews, while there, intermarried with the people of Babylon, and after 70 years they were set free, many of the Jewish people remained and they stayed there. Many of them stayed put in Babylon where they maintained their Jewish practices and beliefs and taught from the Old Testament scriptures and the Messianic prophecies found there. Some of the men in this group of Magi were not only astronomers and studiers of astrology, but they also were students of the Old Testament scriptures. They were learned and educated men, avid seekers of truth. And this is a strange mixture of Old Testament beliefs with occultic practices, and yet some of the Magi evidently placed their faith in these Old Testament messianic writings. When this phenomenon appeared in the sky, they must have related it to the Old Testament messianic prophecy found in Numbers. Chapter 24, verse 17, where it says, A star will come out of Jacob, Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. These magi must have been convinced that this phenomenon they witnessed in the sky was the indication that the Jewish Messiah had been born. So they set out on a journey to find him and to worship him. They journeyed from Babylon to Jerusalem via normal trade routes. That would be approximately 800 miles. At 20 miles per day, it would take them around 40 days to get there. These Gentiles were driven by belief that where that star ended up would be the place they would meet the Messiah, the one that Old Testament scriptures prophesied about. Let's read on in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And that phrase, deeply disturbed, in other versions says that they were terrified, that they were in great turmoil. And from what we've learned about Herod, we can figure out why both he and the people of Jerusalem were disturbed. 
You see, Herod had heard that there was a rival to his throne in town. Someone with the same title as his, the king of the Jews. Herod loves his position and power, his authority and control. He loves the wealth that he's accumulated through the burdensome taxing of the people. He's not going to be a man who relinquishes his position and his power that easily. We've already heard of his jealousy and paranoia to the extent where he murdered his own wife and two of his sons. So the people of Jerusalem most certainly knew of Herod's ruthless, murderous reputation. And now they've got some people, some guys, some wise men who are going through the town asking, hey, do you know where this king of the Jews was born? The town must have been thinking, watch out, all hell is about to break loose. No one knows who's going to get caught in Herod's cross where hairs of paranoia and accusation. And a king like this would probably more than likely have a bunch of spies roaming through the town, listening for scuttlebutt about people who possibly could be involved in a plot to overthrow him. Panic must have been spreading through much of that city. Let's read verses 4 through 6. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. So he gathers a bunch of high priests and scribes together, and they're asked the question, um, where would this baby, this king of the Jews, be born? And they immediately answer uh, with a response from a messianic prophecy found in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Did you notice these priests and scribes, they, they knew their scriptures. And it wasn't like they needed to go off in consultation and try to come up with an answer and come back and give it to Herod. They immediately respond, oh, that's easy. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. These religious leaders that Herod calls together, uh, the high priest would have consisted on the current one and others who formerly held the office along with a substantial number of leading priests. The priests most often were Sadducees while the scribes were Pharisees, two distinct Jewish sects that had opposing beliefs. They didn't like each other much and were constantly in disagreement. Herod more than likely brought these two opposing groups together as one council because in his extreme paranoia, he didn't want to be tricked. This group appears to be unanimous in agreement as to the answer to Herod's question. Evidently, a spokesman for the group quotes a messianic prophecy from the book of Micah that reveals the future Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. The long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, is basically just six miles away from where this was going on and these scribes and the high priest couldn't care less. They go back to business as usual with closed hearts to the reality of their need. They continue to pride themselves in their spiritual self-righteousness and the elite status they held before the people. And it appears that everyone in the town misses it as well. No one seems to care about what these men are asking, what they're saying. The Messiah has been born near here. People angry and afraid of what an oppressive government might do. People busy living the routines of their daily lives can't be bothered with this stuff. 
People wanting a savior who would free them from government oppression and tyrannical rule, one who would return them to the rightful place of power and glory as a nation. A savior who would save them from their sin. We don't need saving from our sin. We're okay, we're religious, we're God's chosen people, we're accepted by him already. Why would we need a savior to save us from our sin? We need someone who will restore our nation to prominence. Kind of sounds like a lot of people in our country today. We don't need to talk about this Jesus stuff. We, we need somebody in office who's going to bring righteousness back to our country. And they elevate people thinking that people are going to solve the problems when Jesus is the answer to all the problems. Let's read verses 7 and 8. And Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Herod is plotting and scheming here. It appears he has already created a devious plot in his mind. And he first wanted to know the place where this child would be. But then he wanted to know the exact date the star appeared. And what he's really wanting to know is the date the child was born. He wants to know the child's age. Next week, we're going to see just how sinister his plan really is. He sends these wise men off to find the child and then tells them to come back to him and report their findings. He says, so it's I can worship him. But we're going to see clearly next week that that's not at all what he has in mind. Horn in verses 9 through 11. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, a star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the wise men hear from the people of the city that the child more than likely is in Bethlehem. So they journey, start their journey out there, and suddenly the star reappears. There's a lot of speculation about this star. Some think maybe it was a supernova, an exploding star. Maybe it was the converging of two planets. Maybe it was a comet. Or maybe it was just an ordinary star that God uses in extraordinary ways. We really can't know for certain, but what I believe we can know is that it was a supernatural working of the hand of God. It reminds me of how God led the Israelites through the wilderness in a cloud by day and a fire by night. It appears as the wise men entered Jerusalem, they had lost sight of the star. And of course, they're going to end up in Jerusalem because Jerusalem, the capital, it's the big city. It's where royalty would be born. And so they're going around Jerusalem probably thinking that they're going to find him there. And then they find out, well, no, we, we're pretty sure the prophecy says that he's going to be in Bethlehem. So they start out again in the direction of Bethlehem and the star reappears. The star went ahead of them and they followed it until it stopped and shone brightly over one place. And that place was not a stable with a baby lying in a manger. It was a house located in Bethlehem, a house where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were living. 
And our text says that the wise men entered the house, and upon seeing Jesus, they were overwhelmed with joy. What do you think they observed as they saw Jesus? Not a baby lying in a manger. Not a baby with a halo surrounding his head. More than likely, at the time, they saw a toddler, probably close to two years of age. Was he crawling? Had he begun to walk yet? Was he making sounds like words, or had he begun to talk? Did he have a glorious smile on his face, or was he fussing while in the middle of a diaper change? Was he still breastfeeding, or was he chowing down solid foods? Max Lucado, writer of the Savior's birth, says, But in reality, that moment was like no other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a baby. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He was larger than the universe, became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God is a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for shepherds, there would have been no reception. And if it were not for a group of stargazers, there would be no gifts. After almost 41 years since I found Jesus, or should I say since Jesus found me, I'm still blown away that the eternal God the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-wise, glorious, beautiful, wonderful God would take on human flesh to rescue the likes of me. But ever these wise men saw in Jesus that day, they knew that they were in the presence of divine royalty. Their emotions could be none other than overwhelming joy. They responded as only one could. They bowed down and worshipped him. This child born in Bethlehem was the long-awaited Messiah named Jesus, for he would save his people from their sin. It's almost as if we should stop this moment and try to take this all in. What a magnificent scene this is. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Then they present their gifts to him. And we know they must have been gifts of great value, worthy of royalty. They certainly could have been used by Mary and Joseph to provide for their family's physical needs as they lived as refugees. For they ended up living in Egypt for three years before returning to Nazareth. I have to wonder, in part, if this was the solution to the potential scandal that awaited them if they returned home too soon. People may have questioned if the child was born out of wedlock. Joseph's carpenter's business probably suffered while they were living in Egypt, and they would have been in need of money. We cannot know what was in the hearts of these wise men as to the reason for these gifts, but I love what one scholar suggests, that maybe, just maybe, there's spiritual significance behind each one. 
They present him with gold representing his royalty, which has prophetic significance. With frankincense representing his priestly office, for it was what the priest would use in the temple during worship. Myrrh pointing to his redemptive work on the cross, for it was what was used in embalming. One Bible scholar asked, could these three gifts point to the truth that this child was to be the royal king, the king of kings and the lord of lords, the one who one day would rule forever? Could it be that it was pointing to that he was the great and perfect high priest, the one true mediator between God and man, the one who would bring sinful man and a holy God together in relationship? Could it be that they pointed to the supreme savior who through his death on a cross would provide forgiveness and justification and reconciliation for all who believe. These gifts given as acts of worship led me to think of two things, especially during this gift-giving season of Christmas. It appears that the wise men gave this little king their very best. What is the gift, gift, what is the best gift that we could give the Lord? I believe it's our heart. The scriptures declare that God doesn't look at the outward appearance of things, nor does he look at the good works that we try to perform for him. He looks at our hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants our love in return for the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever witnessed, God becoming human flesh, so that he might take upon himself the sins of the world as he died on the cross, so that you and I might be forgiven and granted eternal life. He loves us, and he wants us just that much. Have you presented your heart in worship to Jesus, saying, take it, it's all yours? What a wonderful gift you could present to him this Christmas season. This leads me to a second thing I thought of as I reflected on this special moment for the wise men. There was something they knew deep in their hearts that led them to seek with all their hearts this baby born king of the Jews. That led them to take a 40-day journey over 800 miles, willing to put everything in their lives on hold, to put everything on the line in a foreign land ruled by a tyrant king and led them to fall on their knees in worship and present this newborn king with their very best gifts. This is what they must have known. And it's what the Apostle Paul understood. In 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The Apostle Paul is saying that there's no adjectives he can use to rightly describe God's extraordinary gift in Jesus. In essence, I believe he's saying that when we truly understand how precious this gift is that God has given us, a lifetime of worship is our never-ending grateful response. What an indescribable gift. What an extraordinary gift. What a gift beyond compare. What a gift that is better than all other gifts. You can accumulate all the gifts that you've ever been given and place them right here on this stage and it wouldn't even pale in comparison to the gift of Jesus Christ. Let's finish off in the final verse, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. 
And next week, we're going to understand why God led them away from Herod, leading them to return to their homeland via a different route. And we're going to understand that these men knew that by doing this, they were saving this young boy's life. I don't want you to miss something this morning. From eternity past, God had a plan of redemption for you and I. All of history has been God orchestrating events and people towards his redemptive ends. And he set it officially in motion the day Jesus was born and laid in a manger. And there's nothing or no one that can thwart this plan. God ensures it. Whether it is Jesus' first coming already fulfilled that first Christmas morning, or the promise of a second coming, where one day God will bring his redemptive plan to complete fulfillment, these are promises you can count on. When he declares he has loved you with an everlasting love, it's real. When he says you are forgiven by Jesus' shed blood and he never again will hold your sin against you, receive it as your very own. When he says he will never leave you or forsake you or nothing can separate from his love in Christ, believe it, rest, and feel secure in it. When he says he has gone to prepare a place for you in heaven, count on it. God has always been sovereign in control of all things. It's true for the history of the world. It's true for your life today. It will be the same tomorrow and forever. And when he says you will have trouble in this world, but take heart that he's overcome the world. And because of that, he can work all things to good in your trouble and pain and heartache and loss for his glory and your good. Rest assured he can and he will. Your sorrows will never be wasted. He is with you. He is with you. He is for you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're struggling, no matter what trial you're facing, no matter what pain you're experiencing, no matter what you're suffering, he's with you. He's for you. In our first three weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen the sovereignty of God. We've seen his hand upon all of history. We've seen it in a genealogy that is filled with broken human lives, and yet those who are redeemed, they're lives of real people whose family tree led to the Messiah. We've witnessed it in visitations of angels given needed and important messages of truth. We've seen it in a virgin birth, something miraculous that is beyond scientific understanding. We've seen it in cosmic phenomenon in the heavens that guided people to the Messiah's chosen destination. We've seen it through dreams and visions given by God to people for direction and much-needed reassurance. We've seen it through fulfilled prophecies of a Messiah that were given hundreds of years prior to that baby being born and placed in a manger. And we've seen it in three gifts given by wise seekers of truth that were not only gifts of worship, but gifts that would sustain this refugee family until they returned home. God is sovereign. We're so early on in this book of Matthew that we're walking through, and already we see clearly that God is sovereign over it all. He's in charge. He's in control. And in his love, his plans for us will not fail. His love and goodness can be trusted. And when you want to doubt it, remind yourself of the gospel story. Remind yourself of the story of Christmas, the story of redemption, the story of Jesus. Chuck, you and the band, you guys can come on up.
If you remember, I began this morning by stating that the most important question to answer in your life is who do you say Jesus is? The wise men in our story, they were educated men. They were men of science. They were students of the scriptures. They were also men who were misguided by the mystic arts. And yet were honest seekers of truth. Through God's sovereign actions, their search led them to Jesus. And their response when finding him was all-out worship. For in that moment, they finally had found him. They knew they were in the presence of deity, the promised Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sin. Listen, people in search of God start their journey in all kinds of places. While there is only one way to find Jesus through faith, there are many different journeys people take to get there. From all points of compass, from all over the world, people with all kinds of beliefs. The God of the universe uses in the minds and hearts of people elements which may seem unusual to us that begins a person's search, that starts out their longing for understanding, that stirs within them a desire to investigate. When that search is honest and sincere by God's grace, it leads them to that one place where that one person exists who reveals to them that he alone is the one solution, the one answer to all of life's questions, the one remedy that binds them up, the answer to what frees them from fear and worry, the one who fills that inner void and gives peace, the answer to loneliness, and the one who mends the broken heart. And on a search will lead you to Jesus. Give your heart to him. I want to close this morning's message with a promise from God to the honest and diligent seeker. Jeremiah 29, 13, and 14 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, and I will lead you out of captivity. Take some time now, regardless of where you are in your search, to meet with Jesus. He's here. He wants to meet with you. He longs to spend some time with you. And then as the band begins to play a song named Jesus, worship him with hearts full of joy as the angels proclaim to some lowly shepherds that first Christmas morning. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Go ahead and spend that time with Jesus right now.